This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, either live streaming at WAGP.net or listening locally at 88.7, we're so glad for you to join us. Uh, For the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Sometimes there's a particular issue in your life or ministry that you're challenged with or you're looking for biblical wisdom as it relates to family or marriage. And if we can be of help by God's grace, we will. The easiest way for you to contact us is just to use the local 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that number is 525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. We always do give preference to live callers, uh, and if you do call in live, you can dictate your question if you don't want to go on the air, or we can put you on live. And if you do that, turn your radio down so you don't get confused. All right, Walter, it's great to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Abby out of Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, Pastor Carl, in Job chapter 2, verse 1, who are the sons of God in this verse? And why in these subsequent verses did God even entertain Satan's whims? Why didn't he just send Satan away instead of letting him torture Job? Well, it's a good question, and uh, it's interesting because what you find in a number of different places in Scripture is dialogue that God has between angels, in this case, unholy angels, uh, in the presence of the Lord, in the throne room of God. And it's found in different places, uh, in the Psalms, like in Psalm 82, Psalm 85, Psalm 86, where you find the sons of God or the hosts of God, uh, they're given different names, interfacing with God. Not that God needs their help, he's omniscient, but they serve him, and they are there to serve his people. In fact, angels are ministering spirits sent out to render uh, service or help or ministry to those of us who will inherit salvation. In the particular case that we're dealing with, it says now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And of course, the word here for Lord is Yahweh. And Satan also came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, uh, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and says, does God fear you? Does Job fear you for nothing? And of course, um, the B'nai Elohim, that's the word that's used here, sons of God. And it's used to describe angelic beings. And when you think about angelic beings, there's different classes. The broadest categories are what we call holy or elect angels. And then, and there's all kinds of terms that are used to describe angels in the scripture. 
whether it's on the morning stars or uh, the hosts of heaven, the armies of God, all, all kinds of terms, about 20 different terms that we cover in our course in angelology. But here, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. In fact, you find the B'nai Elohim in another section of Scripture far earlier, though Job lived during the time of the patriarchs. Uh, so when you look at him chronologically, he doesn't seem to fit in with Abraham's time, and that's just because where we place the book of Job in the English Bible, the arrangement is different in the Hebrew Bible, but he lives during the time of the the patriarchs, and nonetheless, um, prior to that, in Genesis 6, you see the B'nai Elohim, uh, the sons of God, cohabitating with the daughters of man, and of course, the the race that was the offspring was freak, and it helped contribute to the worldwide judgment of the flood. But here, they're coming into God's presence, and Uh, interestingly, Satan is basically saying, look, Job doesn't serve you because he loves you. He serves you because uh, you've bought him. Uh, And so he says, have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God, of course, is demonstrating his righteousness. And in this case, that Job is indeed upright and blameless, as God describes him, before the other holy angels that are also present. And so God, on this particular occasion, gives Satan opportunity, and he has legions of angels under his care. About a third of the angels, as it's described, fell with Satan, and they're under his control and two-thirds of the angels are holy. And one of the things that God is doing in the angelic realm, much that's unknown to us, is he's displaying his righteousness, his grace. In fact, every time a church worships, Paul reminds the Corinthians that there are angels who are watching. They are learning because uh, they, too, are finite beings. They're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They're not human Uh, But nonetheless, they are persons. They're called angelic persons, and so they have mind, will, and emotion. And even in the angelic realm, there's a war that's going on. There's questionings that are going on. And among other things, God is demonstrating to the angelic realm that Job is indeed a true man of God. And so he allows the evil one to test him. Uh, You know, you'll have to get to heaven to say, well, why did he choose Job, and why did God let this happen? And God has a purpose. He has a long view that we don't often see. And look at the blessing that has come from reading the book of Job to millions of God's people over the centuries who have learned how to deal with great testing. And in the book of Job, of course, where there are these four men who come and speak different kinds of counsel to Job, uh, we find sometimes some very, very bad counsel as God disapproves at the end of the book. And we can learn, too, how not to understand our trials and our heartache that we're going through. So God allowed it to happen, among other reasons, not just to display his righteousness and his sovereignty, and that he is a righteous God, and that he doesn't buy people's love, but also to demonstrate that Job is indeed an upright man, that he is not obeying simply because he's blessed is obeying because he loves the living God. And through his trials, God is giving us instruction for the centuries 
of how to deal with trial. So it's a good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, we're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Ryan from Raleigh, North Carolina. Good morning, Ryan. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Hi, good morning. My question is, when the believer dies, I know we await uh, resurrection uh, very far in the the future. So in the intermediate state, do we occupy and do we have a physical body in heaven? Or, and then what, what verses would teach that or, uh, or the opposite? No, it's a great question. So um, we do not have our final body. And so sometimes you'll hear people who are misinformed. They're well-meaning. The place, the time to correct them is not at a funeral. Typically, when they say, oh, Uncle Bob is up in heaven now in his resurrected body and he's no longer, you know, limping and he's dancing with his wife who's gone on ahead and they use these metaphors and these word pictures that really aren't accurate because he's not in his resurrection body. Uh, the wet resurrection body is still in the future, but is there some temporary or intermediate body? And the answer is yes. So let me first deal with the resurrection body to affirm that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed. It's the word agnosis. Gnosis is our word for knowledge. And so when you put the alpha prefix before it, it's basically saying we don't want you to be ignorant. And sadly, there's a lot of ignorance about what happens at death. Now, the church at Thessalonica understood the doctrine of the resurrection. They didn't question that. That's a doctrine that's taught in the Old Testament. We were just referencing the book of Job with the last caller. Job affirms the doctrine of the resurrection, as does Abraham. With that said, we have a fuller revelation of the doctrine of the revelation as God unfolded Scripture for us. And so we don't want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep. Their question was more over the timing of the resurrection. What happens if someone has died? Uh, Paul was in the church at Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, so for potentially about a month or so. Um, If he was at the tail end of one, went through three, and went all the way to close to a fourth. So he was there, you know, four plus weeks. And with that said, he spoke about the end times, which tells us about the priority of eschatology or last things as it needs to be taught. If you're there only three weeks, someone might say, well, that's way down on the priority list of things they have to learn. But in Paul's mind, it was way up in the priority list, which kind of shows you how things are inverted in the church today. Because sadly, most pastors don't even speak on the subject of prophecy and central to end times prophecy is the future resurrection. So we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Sleep here is a reference to death, and it's a beautiful metaphor that God uses in Scripture. I was reading yesterday in Acts 7, Stephen fell asleep. That is, they rocked him, they stoned him because they hated the message. He died. But sleep is a beautiful metaphor because just as last night you lay down in a bed, you get up this morning, a body is laid down in the grave, but God gives as much promise to the body as he gives to the soul. So we don't want you to be uninformed and to grieve like those who have no hope. Don't grieve like pagans. We grieve, but we should not grieve in the same way. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what we confess, 
It's not questioned whether or not they believe that. It's assumed to be true. It's what we call a first-class conditional statement in Greek. But you would write it in that fashion to get people to pause and to think. Uh, Jesus um, was questioned by Satan, if you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into loaves of bread. Uh, He wasn't questioning that he was the son of God. Again, the same grammatical structure, because you are, do this. But why do they put it in that structure? To cause us to pause, to cause us to think. And so if we really believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, that's the confession of every true Christian. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean with him? Well, to live is Christ, Paul will tell the Philippians, but to die is gain. So it's not a loss when you die. Some have falsely taught, like Seventh-day Adventist soul sleep, that your body, soul, and spirit, uh, we're a three-part person, sleeps in the grave. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the scripture speaks to die is gain. Paul says, I prefer on the one hand to depart and to be with Christ. Uh, he'll say to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him. With him from where? From heaven. Because the person inside this human shell immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. He'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's talking about believers in heaven. What kind of state are they in? Well, they're in some kind of an intermediate body. How do we know that? Well, for instance, when uh, Elijah and Moses were in the Mount of Transfiguration, They were in some kind of an intermediate body. Had they been raised yet? No. In fact, the first really to be raised in a broad scheme, you have Christ and then a handful of Old Testament saints as the uh, graves are opened and they walk around the city of Jerusalem and they're carried up into heaven. So that was, uh, Christ was the first one ever to be resurrected. He's the first fruits. And in keeping with the Feast of First Fruits, there was a, a handful that followed, and so you have a handful of Old Testament saints who are raised. But the next big harvest is the church. And then at the end of the tribulation period, Romans 12 teaches that's when Old Testament saints will be raised. And yet, we find Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration visible. How so? Well, because they're in some kind of an intermediate body. Uh, Even Samuel, when he's brought up out of Sheol, righteous Sheol, he's recognizable um, to the witched Endor. Why? Because he's in some kind of an intermediate body. As you step into the book of Revelation, you find tribulation saints. These are saints who die after the rapture. These are people who are converted during the great tribulation. And what's the cost to them? Most of them are beheaded because they refuse to take the mark of the beast. And yet you see them in heaven wearing white robes. How so? Well, they're awaiting their resurrection. When is their resurrection? Well, according to Revelation 20, they're raised when Old Testament saints are raised. So there is some kind of intermediate body, but it is not our final body. And that's important, and I think that's comforting. So that if um, you you die and you've lost a loved one, a mother, a brother, a sister, You're going to see them visibly in heaven, not in their final resurrected glorified body, but nonetheless, you will see them. So when does the resurrection body come? Well, he tells us plainly, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that's really the heart of their question. What if you died before the Lord returns? You know, when are you going to be raised? Are you going to be raised maybe like when Old Testament saints are raised? Are, are you going to be raised after the kingdom? Will you miss the coming kingdom age? When, when is it going to happen? And so he wants to make it clear that actually those who've already died and gone home to be with the Lord, again, 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord, uh, they're the first ones to go up. We who are alive will not proceed. We won't go up before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the first to come out of the grave are uh, those who have died during the church age. God will bring back with him their spirit, reconnect it to the body in the grave. It's not suited for heaven, the body that's been buried. Uh, this mortality, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. And God will give us that prepared body that will be in the likeness of the one that we have. You will recognize your loved ones in heaven just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable. And if you think about it, it's kind of an interesting thought that they were recognizable to the disciples, those three men that God brought to the top of the Mount of the Transfiguration, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, because they had never seen Moses or Elijah, which may be a real blessing for us because when you get to heaven, you say, well, now what was that guy's name? He looks familiar to me. You'll know it. You'll just have a sense of recall and recognition. So the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the angel, archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will come out first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So there's this uh, reunion in the clouds as we go up, and we'll meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll be with him forever. Great question. Let's go on to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl, again, that is 843-525-1859. We're going to stay with the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Stephanie from Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Stephanie. You're live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Hi. Okay. My question is, um, what is your response to people who say that the rapture is a new idea put forth by John Darby in 1830, and so it wasn't found in church history before that? So since it's relatively new, it's not true. Good question. So uh, John Darby, poor guy, becomes kind of a straw man, and he... um, He's made to be some ignoramus, uh, like he even had this uh, vision from some girl who is in Satanism, and just all kinds of slander and sad things said about him. He's actually brilliant. The man knew 15 languages, 15 languages. He was involved in the planning of literally hundreds of churches. God used him in a mighty way. Uh, What he did do unlike a lot of other Christians, he began to focus on the doctrine of eschatology because it had been an ignored doctrine. Certainly at different times in the history of the church, especially in the early centuries, there were other doctrines that needed to be highlighted and focused on. Uh, The deity of Christ was being denied. And so they dealt with uh, Christ's deity. His humanity was being denied by some. So they dealt that he was a divine human person. Uh, The deity of the Spirit was being denied. The doctrine of the Trinity was being denied. And so there were different doctrines at different times in the history of the church that you will read more about because those were focused doctrines. 
in the early 1800s, the doctrine of angels was being denied. And angels were fictitious, made-up, middle-age beings that were supposedly created by man. And so, for instance, in Schaeffer's Systematic Theology, he had an entire volume in his eight volumes dedicated to angelology. Why? Because he was dealing with an error. Now, if anything, it's gone to the other extreme, and angels are everywhere, and you've got a, you know, you can pray to your angel, and they've gone bizarre with it. Um, But John Darby was not the first person to speak on the doctrine of the rapture. Uh, There were people, if you listen to my uh, series called God's Prophetic Schedule, so I'm going to direct you there. It's 31 messages, and I quote some men out of the 1600s who believed it. Uh, You can actually go all the way back to the church fathers, and they believed and taught premillennialism. Well, if you teach premillennialism, it means that you believe in an imminent return. And while they didn't use the word rapture, why didn't they use the word rapture? Well, primarily because um, even some of the church fathers, they're still interfacing with Greek. And so it's not until the uh, Jerome comes along and Jerome uh, moves to a little town called the House of Bread. We know it famously as Bethlehem. He spends 35 years in that town. Why? Because he wants to learn Hebrew. He already knew Greek. He knew Latin. He lacked a knowledge of Hebrew. So for 35 years, I've been to the actual cave in which he lived for 35 years. It's actually somewhat adjacent, maybe 30 yards from the cave in which Jesus was born in. And it was really quite nice, you know, all things being said in so far underground that it was actually quite comfortable on a hot day which they had many in the Middle East. And he learned Hebrew from the rabbi scholars there, and he translated the Bible into uh, Latin. And Latin for the next seven, 800 years became the primary translation of the Bible, nearly a thousand years of church history. It's the predominant translation. And of course, the word rapture is not found in the English Bible, but it's found in the Latin Bible. And so if someone were to read older commentaries, and they're looking for the word rapture, they're not going to find it because um, in the at least 17 and 1800s, most people are not reading Latin any longer. And so they're reading of the catching up of the church. And so we shall all be caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo, but in the Latin Bible, it's raptoro that comes into English as rapture. The word rapture is not in the Greek New Testament, but it's in the Latin Bible. I don't care what you call it. Is there a um, catching up of the church? Well, when you read the church fathers, and sadly, Dr. Ice, Tommy Ice, who, in fact, I communicated yesterday with him and his family, uh, who was here for a prophecy conference, um, Dr. Ice reminded me that only 20% of all the writings of the church fathers have even been translated. And of course, his organization has a huge grant where they are in the process of translating much of the untranslated works of the church fathers. But what we do have, it's clear that they were a premillennial, that is, they believed that Christ would come, the second coming, before he ruled and reigned on the earth. And so unlike the popular doctrine, really all the way through the 1800s, from the the time of the Reformation through 
the, the middle of the 1800s, everyone was virtually a millennial. They didn't believe that Christ would literally rule on the earth. Why? Because they had embraced what's called supersessionism. That is, the church had superseded the promises to Israel that God had forsaken Israel, no longer had a plan for them. In popular language, language we call it replacement theology. And so if there's no coming kingdom, there's just one big event, the second coming, it all happens at once. We leave earth, we go to heaven, the lost and the saved are judged, and that's the end of it. Well, you, you have to spiritualize so much of scripture to come to that. And you had men like John Darby, you had men like Dwight L. Moody and so many others who recognize that that's not how God fulfilled the prophecy for the first coming. So why should we spiritualize the prophecy for the second coming? So if the church fathers are premillennial, which they are, that's not really debated. They're not amillennial. The early church fathers are all premillennial. They believe that Jesus is going to return and rule and reign for a thousand years. That forces a person into a pre-tribulational rapture. Did they write extensively on it? No, because they're dealing with other issues. They're dealing with issues like the deity of Christ. What are they dealing with during the time of the Reformation? They're dealing largely with issues like the authority of Scripture and what role that takes that takes place in, in light of the traditions of the church, the Roman church, that said superseded uh, the authority of Scripture, or at least on equal basis with it. And so they were dealing with other issues. But if you believe in a premillennial return, and show me a church father who didn't, and then I can show you a church father who didn't believe in an imminent return. But they all believed in the premillennial return of Christ. And so if that's true, then you have to ask, for instance, when you come to a text like Revelation 20, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which were in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down and devoured from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was then thrown in the lake of fire. And so how is this going to happen? The only way this can happen is with a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, again, everyone believes in a rapture. Nobody discounts a rapture. So let's define some terms. All the word rapture means, how about so, is to be caught up. The debate is over the timing of the rapture. And so if you take a passage like this, literally, you have to argue for a pre-tribulational rapture. As people in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s did, Darby certainly making it famous. How did he make it famous? Because he began to hold camp meetings across the country. And people for the first time in many ways were being taught on end times doctrine, a doctrine that had largely been ignored. And I think that was God's providence because he was preparing people for what was going to happen 50 years later, where he would begin to regather the Jewish people through the early Zionist movement, make them a nation in 1948, and then bring them from the four corners of the earth. And so today in Israel, there's over 100 nations of Jewish people. God said that would happen at the end of time. So I think God was preparing and instructing his church for what would happen. But if we go up at the second coming, 
and then come back to rule and reign, everyone's in a glorified body, then who can Satan tempt at the end of the thousand years? Because when you're in your glorified body, you can't sin. So what do they do? They just discount the millennial reign altogether, and they say there is no reign, the church has replaced Israel, uh, and they don't interpret the prophecies that that refer to the return of Christ in the same manner that God fulfilled the prophecies concerning his first coming. They spiritualize it. And John Calvin was a classic example of this. So is it new? No, the apostle Paul taught a pre-tribulational rapture. Jesus taught a pre-tribulational rapture. How so? Well, Jesus plainly said in John 14, uh, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to the Father's house. I'm coming back for you, that where I am, you may be also. And so first he comes for his saints, then he comes back with his saints. Again, you have to discount the plain reading of Scripture. And so Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation, And when he dealt with eschatological passages, he just tripped over himself. It was obvious he didn't know what to do with them. But Calvin thought the church was the new Israel. He put a different spin on it than Roman Catholics did. He said that, um, no, it's not the Roman church that's the new Israel. It's the body of Christ, born-again Christians. But nonetheless, he set up Geneva like a theocracy. So he had Michael Silvetus uh, burned at the stake. Why? For theological heresy for what he considered was blasphemous. We're not living in a theocracy. He never should have done that. Um, And so it's not a new doctrine. The apostle Paul believed it. Uh, The New Testament writers believe in imminency. You might want to take my course on eschatology, totally different from the Revelation series or God's prophetic schedule. And I go through in that course, 10 reasons taught biblically for a pre-tribulational rapture. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Margie out of Savannah, Georgia. She writes, what does the Bible say about women in leadership leadership positions in my business? My husband employs women with grown children in his business who will potentially take over at his retirement. I understand what the Bible says about women in the church not leading men, Does this principle also apply in the business world? Well, certainly the instruction that Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 2 deals with uh, women as they relate in the body of Christ, and not simply to the local church, but to the body of Christ. And there are people today who want to dissect the text and say, well, you know, outside of the Sunday morning assembly or some midweek gathering, women have a freedom that they don't have in the local assembly. That's just not true. If you're going to interpret the scripture that way, then you have to butcher quite a number of texts. For instance, when Paul addresses this issue of women, he precedes it by saying, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And so here he's dealing with a woman's dress that it should be modest. It's one of the great not-buts of Scripture. Not only this, but this. Not only are you slaves, but I call you friends. He's not saying we're slaves anymore. 
that we're not slaves, but we're more than slaves. We're friends. He's he's not saying that a woman can't braid her hair or wear, wear costly garments or gold or pearls, but it needs to be done in a way that's proper. So it's one of the not buts. And I walked through that in my series on First Timothy. But clearly, uh, the text applies not just when they gather on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. So it's not like a woman comes modestly and discreetly, not in some kind of show off like, ooh, you know, maybe discreet. I mean, maybe modest, but it's not discreet. Look at that woman. Wow. You know, she's drawing attention to herself. No, we're here not to worship the way a woman is dressed. Uh, we're here to worship the living God. And and that should be the pattern, not just in church, but throughout the week. It's not like you can dress immodestly during the week, but, you know, you wear, you wear modest clothing in church. And the same is true when it comes to teaching and instruction in the body of Christ. So when we have these women who say, like a Priscilla Schreier, you can, I can teach on a cruise, maybe not in the local church, but I can teach on a cruise, and now she teaches in a local church when she's, quote-unquote, under someone's authority that gives her that permission. No pastor has authority to give a woman authority that God expressly forbids. So with that established, I, I read this, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is within the body of Christ. Now, does that mean a woman couldn't have some leadership position? No, it doesn't. Um, but I would say if a woman is born again and she is, say, a CEO of a corporation, who's raising her children if she's married and has children? Because then she's in violation of Titus 2 that if she's a born-again believer, she is to be a worker at home raising her children. And if she's an older woman, she is to be engaged in teaching the next generation. So you get these women, too, who, who rationalize, well, you know, my kids are grown and they're out of the house, and so now I'm going to take on this full-time position. Okay, uh, does that mean you can no longer be engaged in teaching the next generation? If so, maybe you should step back or reconsider your overall schedule. So I don't think we could say dogmatically that your husband would be wrong, except if Who's he dealing with? And two, if he's running a Christian company, if he's a born-again Christian, then he wants to think accordingly, and he should think in a way that, A, uses a woman's gifts and abilities, but also at the same time is respectful of a higher calling that God has placed on Christian women. And so is he even doing that? And so sadly today we have many women who, A, haven't been at home at all raising their children, or B, they did it when they were young, but then they jettisoned that responsibility maybe in high school when, if anything, the kids needed them more, and they go off and they get a career, and then their kids get married, and they can't really engage in the next generation of building into their grandchildren. Why? Because they work 70, 80 hours a week, and, you know, and it's a sad picture in it, creates uh, the American family uh, continuing to fall apart. So again, I would just say, if you want what the world has, do what they do and you'll get what they get. And so it's not only a ministry in your local church that is often being jettisoned when a woman goes into the work field full time. Now, if she's single and other things, those are other issues. But then what is the issue as it relates to the next generation? I see my wife as a great blessing when she can go and visit our grandchildren and 
meet with my daughter or my daughters-in-laws and build into their life or when our grandchildren come and spend a week with us and or a grandchild comes and spends a week with us and they all ask to do that and and it's a blessing to them and it's a blessing to us and we have an opportunity to reaffirm the values that their parents are teaching and to build into their little hearts as well. And that's what that's the big picture. You know, you're not going to care when you're 70 years old and you're rocking on your front porch how big a house you lived in and how much money you made. The only thing that will matter on your death day is who in your family, one, found Jesus as Lord, who's walking with him, and have I in turn impacted the next generation well so that generationally they can lead their children to Christ and make the same impact until Jesus comes? Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Mallory out of Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, Do you think that it is wrong for Christians to celebrate some of the biblical Jewish holidays? I homeschool my children and want to be more intentional about celebrating and remembering what God has done for his people throughout the Bible, like the Jewish people do. For example, celebrating Passover and what God did for the Israelites as a foreshadowing of what he would do for all his people through the blood of Jesus. I know the Jewish people don't believe the same as we do, as Christ followers, and I don't want to confuse or mislead my children. Well, it's a it's a fair question. I think one of the key words you raise in the question, Mallory, is the word foreshadowing. So you might want to sit down and in one reading, it'll only take you about 15 minutes, read the book of Colossians. One of the things that Paul is dealing with, a problem in the Colossian church, is they were engaged in giving their attention to what he called shadows instead of the substance of those shadows. And so when you think about the Old Testament feasts, those are shadows, they're foreshadowings, they're prophecies of what God is going to ultimately fulfill in Jesus Christ, either at his first coming or at his second coming. And so it's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. He's in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And Paul uses that imagery in 1 Corinthians 15 as he being the first fruit. Uh, of what's to come. He's the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body, never to die again. It's not by accident that 50 days after the resurrection on Shavuot or Pentecost, the Spirit of God is sent uh, to indwell the church and the church is formed and born. These are all, all seven of these feasts, four that are fulfilled in the first coming, three that will be fulfilled in the second coming. Are important. Should we celebrate them? No, because we're then celebrating shadows. Should we teach them? Yes. You're teaching your children the supernatural nature of the Bible. You see, God's prophecies come in many, many, many in varied ways. Sometimes uh, they'll come through a direct word that Messiah's comings will be from eternity past, that he'll be born in a town called Bethlehem that he'll be pierced through for our iniquities, that there'll be a rich man in his death, that his grave will be associated with transgressors, and and all these, his death will be associated with transgressors, and one thing after another. Hundreds of prophecies, over 300. Uh, Dr. Walford said 333. He was the president of Dallas Seminary when I attended there. Um, He was one of the great, great um, 
prophecy scholars of the 20th century, now home with the Lord. But it's not by accident that God literally fulfilled all of these prophecies. Not only did he fulfill prophecies, he fulfilled feasts. He fulfilled types like Abraham on top of Mount Moriah, if you're reading that passage. Is it an accident as how it unfolds when Abraham has some wood that he puts on Isaac's back? And he carries some fire with him because he's going to need it when he gets to the top of Mount Moriah. And when he tells his servants to remain here because we are leaving to worship God and we are returning to you both. Why? Because though God had instructed him to take Isaac to the top of Moriah and turn him into a burnt offering, he believed, as Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, the fourth chapter, that God is going to raise him back up out of the ashes supernaturally. Um, It's not by accident. Isaac is not some little eight or nine-year-old boy. He's at least around the age of 20. He's able to carry a load of wood on his back. And when he's placed on that altar, his dad, who's an elderly man, he could have easily have overpowered overpowered him. But remember, as Hebrews 11 teaches, he's a type. And so you're teaching types. You're teaching foreshadowings. Why? Because you're showing that this book is supernatural in nature. You're affirming the wonder of God's word to them, so much so that it reverberates in their heart, and they realize that when they open this book, they're reading the very breath, the very words of God Almighty. So no, you shouldn't celebrate these feasts. Should you teach them? Absolutely. We're not celebrating something that uh, cannot, um, that has already been fulfilled. And so we don't celebrate in that sense, but we teach them. And that should be done. And again, this is the whole subject that is ignored in the church today, the subject of eschatology. I had someone who asked me at the new members luncheon last Sunday, and, and I responded to him. I think he wanted me to teach more in eschatology. And I said, look, I teach through whole books of the Bible. And whenever you teach a book of the Bible, sooner or later, you're going to bump into prophecy. I'm teaching the book of Malachi right now. When we come to the fourth chapter, we're dealing with prophecy because not only does he deal with prophetic issues as it relates to the first coming, he's going to look down the carters of time to the second coming of of the Messiah. So you're going to teach prophecy. He said, well, 25% of the book is prophecy. I didn't want to correct him. It's actually more than that. But nonetheless, Uh, You're going, if you teach through whole books of the Bible, you're going to teach prophecy. But I said, I can't teach just prophecy. I have to teach families how to have a good marriage. I have to teach them what the Bible says about church polity. I have to teach them about raising their children. I have to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And it's important that we do that, that we have healthy churches. But certainly, eschatology is ignored. But you're teaching eschatology whether it relates to the first or the second coming when you're teaching these feasts. So learn them. You could certainly use resources like um, Jews for Jesus, so many books they've written on the seven feasts of Israel and how they were literally fulfilled and how those in the future will literally be fulfilled. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Lean out of Citrus Springs, Florida. She writes, Can you please expound on salvation and baptism for young children? The Bible doesn't give a specific age for accountability. With that being said, are children safe even though they might have not been saved until they have the 
the full understanding of repentance and salvation. No, understanding precedes conversion. And so sometimes, you know, parents get their children to pray a prayer and they don't really understand. And that's a little premature. Now, if you think they may understand, encourage them to call upon the name of the Lord. But again, technically, it's not a prayer that saves you. It's Christ who saves you. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Classic example, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Philip is explaining to the Ethiopian Isaiah 53 that has the whole plan of salvation unfolded 700 years ever before it happened. He doesn't know that as the eunuch is listening, God's spirit is speaking to him. He's brought under conviction and he makes a decision. And so at one point in the conversation, the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And conditionally, because understanding precedes conversion, Philip says, well, you can only be baptized if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he had just explained contextually that Messiah is not simply a man, but Messiah is God in human flesh. He just explained contextually that the Messiah would be pierced through for our iniquities. Isaiah writes that 700 years before Christ. Crucifixion's not even invented until the Persians several hundred years later. It's perfected as a means of execution by the Romans. Uh, it's first prophesied a thousand years uh, before the crucifixion in places like Psalm 22. And so he's put it together that this Yeshua, this Jesus in English, whom he is preaching about, is the one that the prophet is writing. And he believes in his heart. And he says, look, water. And he says, well, if you believe, well, I have. Well, wait a minute. Did Philip even lead to him in a prayer? Not at all. With the heart, man believes. Sometimes I'm walking someone through the plan of salvation, and I've asked them some diagnostic questions of one sort or another on the front end, and it's obvious that they don't know the Lord, and I get to the end, and I'll say, well, based on this conversation, where do you think God would put you as saved or lost? And, and sometimes they'll say, as saved. I'll say, well, now think about that for a moment. In light of the answer you gave me in the front end that you're 25% sure you're going to heaven and you thought you would... If you were a better person, you could bring your score up, and that would indicate your your loss. Oh, no, Pastor, as you have been speaking, I now understand. I now believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Wait a minute. I didn't lead you in the prayer. I didn't have to. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. So understanding precedes conversion. So when you're dealing with children, there is no, quote-unquote, as you state, age of accountability. Some have placed it at 12 for the simple reason that Jesus was in the temple dialoguing with the religious teachers over the scriptures. He obviously knew more than they did. They were blown away. Uh, But nonetheless, the scripture doesn't give an age. It would be better, of course, to speak of a point of accountability. And that point might be different from one child than for another. Maybe a child at eight can fully embrace it. Maybe a child at five. But... Uh, sometimes children come in and parents will say, well, you know, my uh, two children here that I brought in today, Pastor, have received Christ with us and we've been praying for them and we just want to make sure that it's real as best so we can tell and would you speak with them? And of course I do. And, and sometimes I'll ask the identical questions that they ask, but I'll ask the question in a different way 
and I'll get a different answer. So for instance, they might ask a zero to 100 question and their children will say 100 and then you ask why and they give this answer. And I might ask, are you not sure, kind of sure or real sure? So I'm thinking of two children in the office and one was a nine and the other was seven. And this has happened so many times. And I said to the seven-year-old who supposedly had received Christ, and you're not sure, pretty sure, or real sure you're going to have it. I'm not sure, Pastor. I want to go, but I'm not sure. Now, what was his problem? He had prayed a prayer. His problem was he just didn't understand salvation yet. Now, his sister was nine. I said, are you not sure, pretty sure, real sure? I'm pretty sure. I want to go to heaven. I think I go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I go to heaven, but I don't know I go to heaven. Question, had she come to faith? Obviously not, though she had prayed a prayer. Look, Coming to faith is acknowledging what Christ did for you. That is preceded by understanding what Christ did for you, that he died in your place as your substitute, as the sinless God in human flesh son, and he proved his sinlessness when he was raised from the dead. You don't have to know a whole lot, but you have to know that much. It's called the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but then you have to respond in faith. Faith is simply believing what God said. Abraham moved to the place I'm going to show you. God hadn't even told him where, but he sent him off. He didn't know where he was even headed, and he walked hundreds and hundreds of miles. He could have taken one of two paths, but he walked around 2,000 miles before God appeared to him again in a place called Shechem, and he said, Abraham, this is the place I want you to live. He just took God at his word, just like Noah. Noah built an ark. Noah had never felt a raindrop on his face, but he responded in faith because he believed that God was going to do what he said. And so a child must believe that God is able to do just as an adult may must believe. Sometimes I'll take a a person through the sinner's prayer and, uh, and and I'll ask them after they pray, well, you told me when we started you were 50% sure. How sure are you now? Well, I'm 75%. Are they saved? No. Why? They haven't believed what God promised. They just haven't taken God at his word. So understanding precedes genuine conversion. You should try to introduce your children to Christ as young as possible. You can't force a decision. So sometimes, like with those two children, they prayed the sinner's prayer with me, and the dad had a big grin on his face, and he said, well, are they ready to be baptized? And I said, well, no, not yet well, wait a minute, they, they seem to understand now. I said, well, they seem to, but how do you know I didn't just coach them? When you coach them at home with truth and you should coach them with truth, they always gave you the right answers. I asked the same questions a different way. They, can't, they couldn't give me the right answers. What did that tell me? That they didn't really own the gospel yet for themselves. They didn't really understand it. And again, understanding precedes conversion. That's a principle found all the way through the scripture. And that's what God calls us to respond, to act on faith. And I'll say, well, how do you know I wasn't just coaching them for the last 30 minutes? So I want you to bring them back in six or eight months, and we'll talk again. And sometimes we have three appointments. Because I meet adults all the time who are baptized before they really understood the plan of salvation, and then their baptism is on the wrong side of their salvation. And rather than it being a point of blessing that they look back, it's more confusion. And and so we just prematurely sometimes help people with things they shouldn't do. Anyway, good question. I hope that helps. You might want to take my course on evangelism. I think you'd find it helpful. I hope to offer that again in 2024 because I haven't uh, taught it in five years. 
Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. I believe we have uh, about a minute and a half left, so one more short question. Okay. Now, our next question comes from Matt, uh, and he would like to know which commentary book set or sets would you yourself recommend? Well, typically there's no one set that is going to be like super well done on every book. Uh, just because of the necessary time commitment in life that God gives us to write really a thorough commentary. For instance, I have a two-volume um, a commentary on the book of Acts and a two-volume commentary in the book of Luke's written, written by the same author. It took him about 25 years to write those four volumes, and, and they're combined maybe um, uh, 3,000 pages. Uh, very, 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 very in-depth. And so when you buy a whole series of commentaries, you're just getting some of the broad strokes. So what I encourage people to do is maybe buy a one or two volume commentary on the whole Bible. Uh, Certainly the Bible knowledge commentary would be a useful tool, not only because is it answering not the obvious, you know, what you're going to a commentary for typically is I'm not sure I'm understanding this passage as I read it. Maybe there's something contextually or historically or culturally that someone needs to shed some light on. And so they typically don't address the obvious, but the more difficult issues. But at the end of every book, there is a um, bibliography. So for instance, you could buy, you know, a one volume uh, series on the book of Romans, or you could buy, buy an eight-volume series just in the book of Romans, or you could read 30 pages in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Well, we're out of time. Hey, let me invite every listener who lives within driving distance of Community Bible Church. You do not want to miss this Sunday. We have Mike Gendron who will be with us. He, Some of you who listen to Jam Markell on Saturdays, you've heard him there before. Uh, he has preached in John MacArthur's church. He preaches to the Master's Seminary. He preaches all over the world. And his specialty is dealing with Roman Catholic doctrine. How do we dissect Roman Catholic doctrine in light of what the Bible says? And so if you are Roman Catholic, or if you have a Roman Catholic family member that you're trying to win to Jesus, this would be a great service for you to come to. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for meeting times and details. We have two services every Sunday at 9, 15, and 11. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today on The Bible Line.